Uh, I regularly, I don't know about you, but I regularly uh, look at uh, news kind of headlines and the big stories of the day. Usually probably like uh, maybe every day, every other day at least I look at them. Uh, One of the things that concerns me recently as I do is I try to read different uh, headlines and sites and different things. uh, It seems to me that in a lot of ways news today has become uh, commentary on the news rather than just the news. And so what it is really wherever you go is you're just getting like a heavy slant of, of this is what I think about what happened, especially stuff that you read. And so a lot of it is just editorials, and I guess that's what it's supposed to be, but it's even kind of made its way into the, the main news. And it's, it's frustrating at different times because I'll read it, and there's really strong opinions uh, uh, coming across, not just here's what happened, but here's my opinion about what happened. And, and depending on which site you read, you may get totally different take on the exact same event from two different sides. And there's nothing wrong with people having opinions. There's nothing wrong with editorials or expressing it that way. But the thing that's concerning to me is oftentimes uh, when someone kind of tells their slant on it, it's like, here's what I think it is. And everyone that disagrees with me should be belittled and mocked and shamed and attacked. And both sides do this on any issue and, and whatever the sides are. You see it over and over again. And what happens is, is the way people come across is they kind of say, and here is the moral way to see this. And anyone else that doesn't see it this way is very immoral and wrong. And so it's OK to attack them. And so this thing happens in our society right now, a, a lot on social media, a lot on just the news that you see and the editorials you'll read. Because any editorial you read today then has comments below. Don't read the comments. Just stay away from those. It's awful if you start to read the comments on those. But but what you see is just this attacking back and forth. And so what often happens when you read it is you'll hear one person say something like this group of people or this person is really judgmental and awful and, and we should look down on them. And then their answer to it is so we should all judge that person. And you read it and you're like, wait a second. Right. Like the the answer to the judgmental person is to be judgmental. And it's almost ridiculous when you start to look at it and you see this over and over in our society. I see it all the time when I read those things. And, And so you get this thing that's really deeply hypocritical and it's almost comically ironic because one person will be like, they're so judgmental. So everybody boycott them and judge them. And you're like, how does that work? But here's the hard part. When I see that. And I read those in my heart. I want to go. They're all idiots. What's wrong with these people? And immediately welling up in me is I want to judge all of them. And I want to do the very same thing that I see them doing that frustrates me. And if I'm not careful, that springs up in my heart so quickly. The deceitfulness of my heart. These people don't understand what's wrong with them. They should see it. And I do the very same thing. And how quickly that can happen. And you see those arguments and how quickly you can grab a side and start to do the exact same thing. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that there's no right or wrong and there's no way to look at different issues or to have not to have convictions. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think that's okay. But we need to be really careful in the way that we enter into those conversations. We need to keep a very close watch on our heart and our attitude as we enter into those conversations. Because when we don't, and what I see in our culture right now is a vicious cycle, that it's just a continual thing. Those people are wrong, and so we're going to attack them. And then the other side says those people are wrong, so we're going to attack them. And it just happens over and over and over again. 
And it's really scary that there's very little actual conversation going on. It's just kind of a lot of yelling back and forth and a lot of shame and guilt and attack and all these sorts of things. And and the reason I start there and the reason I bring that up is what Jesus is going to say in our text in Luke 13 cuts to the very heart and the very core of this promise of this problem. And he's going to say some things that we need to hear as the church in our culture today. If we are going to be salt and light in the culture in which we live, we need to heed Jesus's words and hear what he says. And so we're going to look in Luke chapter 13. If you've been with us, we're walking through uh, the life of Jesus and his ministry and kind of we're doing it chronologically as it unfolds. We're doing this in like four and a half months or so. And so we're, we're missing a lot, but we're just kind of hitting high points along the way. Uh, what I've been saying, if you've been with us, is that Jesus's ministry really breaks down into three years pretty clearly. The first year, uh, not a lot of people know who he is. The second year, he becomes very, very popular. The third year, there becomes great opposition that's arising because he continues to divide the crowd. He continues to clarify who he is. Uh, We were just talking about this this morning in the equipping hour in John's gospel and how he keeps dividing and he keeps saying, I am God. Before Abraham was, I am. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He makes this claim that he is God and the only way to come to God is through him. And people get upset over this. The religious leaders are ready to kill him over it. Uh, But even his followers, he's calling them to follow him. And he's saying, I'm not what you think I am. Uh, The background of the Gospels is so much of the crowds that are coming is they want to make Jesus a political leader. They want to make him their their uh, military leader. They want him to lead a revolution. They want to say, hey, we want to come and follow you so we can go overthrow Rome and do these things. And Jesus keeps saying, I'm not going to give you that. I'm here for way more than that. And it upsets people, but they continue to try to pull him into that. And I think part of it is just that is the the framework with which they see. And so it's very hard for them to see outside of what Jesus is saying. And that's true even of his disciples. They have a hard time getting the fullness of what he's saying. And so this is all background to what we've been looking at. And as we get to Luke chapter 13, we're really just a couple months from the crucifixion. We're well into the third year. We're getting very close as we're coming up to Easter. We're going to coincide with that in our series here as we come right up to the the crucifixion and the resurrection. But here we are in Luke chapter 13, and they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to ask him about something that Pilate did. Uh, If you know the Gospels, you know, Pontius Pilate was one of the the Roman rulers. He was over this area at the time. He's most famous because he's the one that sentences Jesus to death. We'll see Jesus and Pilate have a face-to-face confrontation in a couple weeks. But here they come to Jesus trying to kind of bait him into this uh, political view. We want you to be our leader. Did you hear what Pilate did? And they're going to try to draw, draw him into this kind of thinking. And so as they do, Jesus' words to them are brilliant and they're cutting and they go right to the heart of the matter. And he's going to kind of turn it on them and what they're trying to make it be. He's not going to give them that. He's going to say something that's going to go to the heart of the way we operate and the way we see people and the way we believe change happens. And so the way I want us to look at this Luke 13 and what Jesus says to them is first what it's not right. They come to him thinking that things are going to happen one way and he's going to say, yeah, that's not how it works. So what it's not and then what it is, what he says about what we should be doing and the way that we should be looking at it. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 13 together. So verse 13 in verse one, 
There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them. I'm going to stop there for just a second. We don't know a lot about what happened there, but just the the way it's written and what it tells us is that Pilate had killed some people. And what we know is that when it says whose blood was mingled with their sacrifices, it was some Galileans that are killed and they are killed while they're worshiping. Right? They're there to make sacrifices and they're coming to the temple to worship and they're coming together and they're killed by Pilate in the middle of that. And the people are furious over this and they're frustrated and they come to Jesus and people would have known about this episode and what happens. And they come to him and they're kind of like, what do we do with this? And it's not hard for us, I don't think, if we if we use our imagination to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit. We've actually had a lot of shootings in the last couple of years that have taken places in places of worship. And people have been killed as they go into a place of worship. And there's like this outrage of how could that happen in this place? As people gather together for this purpose and someone comes in and mows them down. But in this case, it's the government. It's the government that's over all the people. And Pilate goes in and kills them and the people are upset and they come to Jesus with this. And his answer is brilliant in what he says and the way he talks to them about it. But he answers them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Jesus takes what they ask and and he kind of turns it and he says something very different. He goes to the heart issue of the people that are involved in this and the way that they're looking at those people. And he kind of turns their question on its side and he goes to something totally different. But you have to first at least get yourself into their mindset and the way they would have heard what he was saying. And so when they come to him, baiting him into this kind of political thing, we're ready to take up arms and we want you to be our leader and you want us to lead us. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Like, what? And what Jesus is getting at, I think, first is that their answer all along the way, and we see this all the way throughout the Gospels, is the answer is for us to overthrow Rome and take back power and restore Israel to its glory. It's this nationalistic pride that we can go and we can do this and we can get rid of the bad guys and then things will be good. And whenever that comes up, Jesus goes, no, it doesn't work like that. And he continues to tweak their understanding on the way they look at it. He continues to rebuke their advance all along the way. Scholar, uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that we cannot read this text without hearing that Jesus is rebuking their idea of overthrowing Rome. That if you enter into this, you likewise will perish. And he's telling them, just stop with that. And he's saying very directly to them, and I want you to think about why, what Israel was called to be and where they've kind of gone off the rails. We see Jesus correcting this in all his teaching as he goes. God called Israel to be a people for his possession way back in Genesis. And it starts with Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless the world through your seed. You're going to be a light I'm going to show you what true worship of the living God looks like. And you're going to show the world what it looks like. 
And I'm going to give you laws that are just and you're going to follow these things so that you can be a light to the world. And somewhere along the way, Israel got lost and started to make it about their own glory and who we are and look at us and we're the best nation. In fact, that's what John the Baptist comes critiquing from the very beginning. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. And he says, if you think you're saved by being Jewish, you're missing it. and You need to repent. Right. Repent means to change from your thinking and the way that you're operating and turn and go the other way. And so when they come to Jesus here and they're saying, let's over, let's go get Pilate. And his answer is repent or you likewise will perish. Jesus will continue to tweak this kind of thinking regularly throughout his ministry. One of his most famous sayings. He says, if somebody asks you to go with them one mile, go two. Right. You know, that phrase that Jesus used. Right. We, we got in our it's made our way into our language. Go the extra mile. Right. If they ask you to go one, you go two. Do you know the context of that statement? A Roman soldier could come to you as a Jewish person living at the time. You could be late for work on your way. And a Roman soldier should, could grab you and say, here, carry my military pack. And by law, you had to carry it for a mile. Only a mile, but once you got to a mile, you could put it down and then you could go on your way. But any time as them as the ruling government could make you do that. And Jesus's answer is, if they asked you to carry it one mile, go to. Die to yourself and serve them. You see how radical that is to a people that are desperately looking for a military leader to go, let's go and overthrow Rome. And Jesus says, hey, when they ask you to do that, go two miles. And he continues to tweak their understanding and how radical his thinking is, how out of this world it is, how upside down his kingdom looks like to the world. And he continues to tweak this over and over when they want to hear, resist and fight. Jesus says, no, you repent or you likewise will perish. A little later in Luke chapter 19, a couple months later, as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem for the last time in Luke 19, he's going up the mountain to get there. And in verse uh, 41 of Luke chapter 19, it said he drew near to the and saw the city and he wept over it. Right. So he's coming up to Jerusalem and he looks out over the city and Jesus begins to weep. And he says, would that you even you had you known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So as he goes up a couple months after this into Jerusalem for the last time, knowing he's about to be crucified, he looks out and he weeps and he says, you're going to be destroyed You're going to be destroyed because you're going to continue to hold to this idea that the way to make things right is to overthrow Rome and go against them. Do you know what he's talking about? In A.D. 70, Nero will burn the place to the ground, literally. We'll wipe them out. And Jesus talks about it in Luke 19. He talks about it in Matthew 24. He says this is coming because you continue to think that this is the way it works. And he's calling us to something completely different. And he's telling them over and over, but they're missing it. It's the work 
of God is to put your faith in me. It's to trust me. It's to look to me. I'm the one that can do for you what you can never do for yourself. And they're going, yeah, let's go overthrow the government. And he's going, no. Right? That's what he's talking about in six through nine there. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none, none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should not, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What is he talking about? He tells them, repent or you will perish enough with this kind of thinking. Now, let me tell you a story. And give you a hint as you read that. What year are we now in in Jesus's ministry? We're right at three years in. Verse seven, he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. He's gone. I've been preaching and I've been teaching and I've been calling you to the kingdom and what it looks like and putting your faith in me and you're missing it. And he said, you got a little bit longer and then it's going to be over. And what he's talking about is when he enters into Jerusalem for the last time and Jesus lays down his life and in his death and his resurrection as he's on the cross and he says it is finished and the veil is torn in two. You no longer come to the temple to meet God. You come through Jesus Christ and him alone and he renders the temple obsolete. It's no longer in Jerusalem and it's no longer a nation and it's no longer through these people or in this way. It is in Jesus alone and nothing else. And it's only by what he does. And it's no longer going to be a theocracy where God is over one nation. Jesus is going to say, go make disciples of all nations. Acts 2, the spirit is going to fall and it's going to go into all people and they're going to go out and they're going to speak the gospel into every tribe, tongue and nation. And it's going to spread throughout the world. And it's no longer about this place or this government or this army. He's like, that's not what my kingdom looks like. And he's telling them the time is coming where it's not going to be like that anymore. Stop thinking that way. This is not what it is. And Israel was missing it all along the way. And he's calling them to something far greater. And so what it's not is this idea that we go and we take up arms and we take it by force and we make people bend to our will because that's not how change happens. It doesn't work that way. And right now in our country and where we live, that's the way people operate. Those people are wrong, they're bad, they're immoral, shame them, attack them. And Jesus stands in the middle going, repent or you likewise will perish. If there's going to be change, that we look at our country and we go, I don't like where it's going. Or I don't like the things that are happening. You know how that gets changed? By people experiencing the grace of God. That's how it changes. It doesn't change by looking like the rest of the world. That doesn't change. That doesn't change hearts. And that's exactly what Jesus is driving at here. 
Look at what he says in verse two. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? There was a common belief that when bad things happened to you, it was because of the sin in your life and you were being punished. We're just reading that in John, right? The man born blind, right? And they're belittling him. Well, you're blind because of sin in your life. And Jesus goes, no, quit pointing your finger at other people and talking about how bad they are. You repent or you likewise perish. Or he tells another story. He says, I tell you. Uh, of the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse defenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So there was a tower right there in the center of Jerusalem and part of it fell and 18 people died. And he says, is that their punishment? Is it because they were worse? And he says, no, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. What's he talking about? He's saying, quit comparing yourself to everyone else and in your self-righteousness, looking down on them and you look at yourself. And I don't think it's too harsh to say it. And please hear what I'm saying as I say this. He says that they were sinners that they were killed by Pilate or were they were sinners because the tower fell on them. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is that you all deserve to have a tower fall on you. And it's by the grace of God that it hasn't happened. That's really hard for us to hear. And the reason it's hard for us to hear is we don't want to believe that we're the worst sinners. And I see what's happening in our culture where people go, well, I'm on the right side of this thing. And so I'm going to attack those people over there because they're wrong and they're immoral. And what that is, is the deceitfulness of our heart to pretend like we're not sinners. Or we're better. That is self-righteousness that leads to nothing. And as long as we continue to operate that way, we're not going to get anywhere. And Jesus calls us to look in the mirror. See, so often, even as the church, let's say what makes us the church of Jesus Christ is that we are believe and we profess that we are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done. Grace is we don't get what we deserve. That's what it means. Undeserved merit. God has not let a tower fall on us, even though we would deserve that. I mean, if you take what Jesus says and you put it in light of what Scripture tells us, I can leave here today and go out to my office and walk out to get in my car and one of those giant trees could fall on me and kill me and God would be completely just in doing so. We don't like to hear that. Because we're sinful, broken people. And God calls us to repent. Stop pointing the finger at other people. Stop looking at the mess around you and going, man, that mess is because of those people over there. We have to stop and look at the truth of the depth of our sin and then begin to see the immenseness of God's grace in light of that. And when that happens. Then we can begin to offer the grace that we have received, but as long as we float along thinking I'm not that bad, 
those people are the real problem. We're going to be continuing that vicious cycle of attacking and going at people instead of extending the grace that God has given us. And it's so easy for us to get caught in that loop of deception. I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect and I'm saved by grace, but at least I'm not like that over there. But that's misunderstanding my sin before a holy God. That's misunderstanding the deceitfulness of my own heart. And that leads to pride, which leads to anger, which leads to denial, which leads to all of these things just happening over and over and over again. And what happens is we get sucked into that, believing that change is going to happen by being really angry. By looking down on people. But everything that the Gospels tell us is that's not the way it works. Did you hear what Dan just read in Romans 2? Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness. It doesn't say, don't you know God's shaming and guilting you and putting you down is what's supposed to lead you to repentance. It's understanding his grace that begins to change us. And it's so hard for us to hear that. And we struggle with that. And that's why I think that's become almost like a popular thing to attack people in those ways. There was an album years ago that came out that I really liked a whole lot by a singer. Uh, His name was Sufjan Stevens. And his uh, album came out. It was about 10, 12 years ago. And it was like album of the year. It, It got all these awards and every publication was like, it's so great. And he got lauded with all these things. And the name of the album was Illinois, and it was all songs about things in the state of Illinois. And it was kind of all over the place, and he's kind of an eclectic guy and all over. But in the middle of this album, uh, I remember reading all these reviews about how great it was. And I probably read five or six reviews. And I remember in almost all of them, at least three or four of them, every reviewer would say the same thing. It's this beautiful album and all this stuff and all these songs, but there's this one really weird song in it. And one of the songs early in the album is called John Wayne Gacy. If you know who John Wayne Gacy is, he was a serial killer who lived in Illinois. And it's like, well, he wrote an album about Illinois. I guess thematically it makes sense. But why is there this really weird song about him lamenting all this horrible stuff that this guy did? John Wayne Gacy used to dress up as a clown to lure children. He killed 33 kids. Buried 27 of them underneath his house. And so when they caught him and they found out and they dug up his crawl space and this horror story. I mean, it's literally like the things of a horror movie. The killer clown who buries the children under his house. But what people said in the review about that album every time. Was the last line in the song. He sings about this guy and at the very end he sings. And I'm really Just like him, look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. And Sufjan Stevens was not confessing to being a serial killer, but he was taking seriously the teachings of Jesus that says, when I say to you, don't murder, but when you have hatred in your heart and you call your brother fool, you are also liable for judgment. Or when Jesus says, I say to you, not commit adultery, but if you've lusted in your mind, you've already done it. 
Sufjan Stevens, as far as I know, claims to be a Christian. And I think what he was saying in that song is the problem is not out there with those people. It's in here in the sinfulness of my own heart. And I'm so aware of that. That I desperately need the grace of God and what he's done for me in Jesus. And the only way that I begin to extend the grace of God is by experiencing it in my own life. And when we think that those people over there are so messed up, we're missing that how desperately we need Jesus. Where we are in our culture, in our country, is we desperately need the church to stand up and say, I am the chief sinner among all and I desperately need Jesus. And then extend the grace that God has given us to those around us. Because what God says is that people are changed by coming into contact with the grace of God to what Jesus has done. It's not by attacking. It's not by shaming. It's by showing them that God loves them. That he is for them, that he wants a relationship with them. And as long as we slide into that thing that our culture's doing, we're not being the salt and light that God has called us to be. We're about to come into the endless cycle of elections and presidential elections and all these things. And everybody's going to talk like this is the thing. And if the right person's not elected, it's all going to fall apart and they're going to get really ugly. And we have an opportunity to stand up in the middle of that and preach Christ with our lives and the way we operate and the way we talk and the way we meet people in the middle of it. To be salt and light when that begins to happen. We have a great opportunity to show people what the love of Christ looks like. But the truth is, when you do that, it's going to be hard. Because that is so our culture. And people are going to attack and they're going to say things and you try to be gracious. And guess what happens? They're not going to be gracious back. And then you're going to want to go, well, forget this. This doesn't work. Let them have it. But in first Peter four, Peter says that if you suffer for the sake of Christ, rejoice. It is a good thing. And then right after that, he says it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. He's saying is it starts with us. Repent. Quit looking at them. You look in the mirror, you repent or you likewise will perish. Seek the Lord in the middle of that. If we claim to be grace bought people, how can we not offer grace to people around us? And the answer is the only reason that we don't is we forget that our standing is by grace. And so we need to be reminding each other every day that it is all what Jesus has done. And so hear this this morning. You are more sinful than you ever thought possible, but you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. And it's all because of our glorious King Jesus. So let us go and extend the grace that we have been given to each person that we meet. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you don't give us what we deserve. We thank you that your kindness and your forbearance and your patience is immeasurable. That you love us and that you call us into relationship with you when we ignore you. When we don't seek you, you continue to pursue us. Let us be people that embody that to those around us. Give us great patience. Give us love for those that are around us that think differently, that see things differently. Give us great empathy. Let us see them as our brothers and sisters that are made in your image that desperately need to have a relationship with you. We thank you for your great grace that you have given us. And we pray all of it in Jesus name. Amen.